Well, it's a pleasure to introduce a speaker who's going to address something a little bit different. We've had a great deal of American history. Had we more time, we would have more historical sessions on different parts of the world, Mesoamerica, China, and, uh, the Islamic world, <coughs> and so on. But we thought that the Europeans deserved at least one session. So we're going to have a presentation by my colleague, Dr. Kuznicki, on um, Europe and liberty, the European experience in liberty. Jason has an exquisitely well-prepared background, a PhD in history from the Johns Hopkins University. He's a real expert in French intellectual and political history. He's the editor of Cato Unbound, which is something I recommend you go and visit online. It's a debate program. In other words, people put up a, uh, an essay with a provocative thesis, and then other people just have at them. And you can go and participate in it and see really smart people hashing out important issues. Jason. Thank you. Um, I don't know about you, but I like my images of liberty to be violent and maybe a little bit risque. Um, <laughs> I'm going to skip from this, which is, which is actually Eugène Delacroix's uh, Liberty Leading the People from, uh, from 1830, commemorating the revolution of that year. I'm going to skip from that to the most important slide that you'll ever see. Uh, this is an illustration of the great fact uh, in, in Deirdre McCloskey's turn. Uh, the great fact of rising living standards throughout the world. The graph itself comes from the book a Farewell to Alms uh, by uh, Gregory Clark. And I, I do, I'm, not, I'm not actually a great fan of the book. I disagree with its central thesis. But I do like the work that he put into making this graph, and I must give him credit for that. Uh, the line that you see taking off vertically, uh, those are the countries that industrialized. And uh, those will be uh, many of the countries I'm talking about here, countries like Britain and Prussia, later Germany, uh, to a somewhat lesser extent France. and. Uh, on the other side of the pond, of course, uh, the United States, which has a tremendous influence on the European story of liberty. Now, you've heard a little bit about why this happened and why it's so important, but I'm going to review just a little, a little bit more to provide a background for the story of ideas and events that I'm going to be talking about. Because these material changes are really, really important, and because the thinkers of the 19th century, which is where I'm going to spend most of my time, are very, very impressed by these events. They know because they have relatively good demographic science in their era. They know that something amazing is happening, something that has never happened before. They know they are living in an unprecedented era. And a lot of the social philosophy that comes out of the 19th century is a response to the great fact. So, so what's going on here? Uh, we can rule out some hypotheses very, very quickly, and social science has already done this work for us. We know that it's not race or genetics. We know this because there have been natural experiments. The natural experiment of uh, the two Koreas, for example. These are, these are people who originally were one people, uh, very similar in their ethnic background, very similar in their genetics, very similar in, in whatever, whatever it is that race is. And this is a little bit mysterious, I'll, I'll admit. It's a little mysterious to me what race actually is. But whatever it is, they've got it. They're very similar, and yet they diverge. And when South Korea experiences its Industrial Revolution, its people become better off. Its graph looks a lot like this one, except starting in the 20th century. And the North Korean graph looks nothing like it. So we know from natural experiments like this one, we know from natural experiments like East and West Germany, 
it is not about race. It is not about genetics or ethnicity or any of those things. It's not about savings rates either. Economic historians have looked at the savings rates uh, in the European countries prior to industrialization. They're not remarkable. They're not all that extraordinary. There's not some great accumulation of saved capital that then becomes industrious. We know that it's not coal. Some people have suggested that coal was what made the Industrial Revolution. We know this is false because the Roman Empire had coal. They knew that it burned. They knew that it was good for making steel. And they had no Industrial Revolution. They mined coal. They occasionally used it. They preferred to use slave labor. It wasn't coal. We know that it wasn't exploitation of the working class that caused this. Because if you look at working class conditions, yes, there were a few reversals during the Industrial Revolution. But by and large, the fate of the working class looks a lot like that upward line on the graph. Their material well-being went up too. Was it good laws? Now we're getting somewhere. This is actually quite plausible. The idea that laws and institutions make countries rich. And I would say that they are necessary, but not quite sufficient condition. You must have good laws. You must have laws about property and contract and labor and land that ensure that people can trade freely and pursue whatever it is that happens to be in their best interests and in their comparative advantage. You must have those laws in place, but they are not quite enough. And one of the ideas that classical liberal scholars have really come around to in the last few years is, is Deirdre McCloskey's idea that the dignity and the, uh, the appeal of being bourgeois actually is very important. And that sounds, that sounds strange and a little implausible and maybe even a little bit, uh, a little bit contentious, uh, to, to put it that way. But uh, it seems very clear to me when you compare the cases of Britain and France uh, that this actually must be the case. That in France, uh, all the way through the 18th century, being bourgeois is something you don't want to be. It is looked down upon. It is socially stigmatized. And in England, it is something to aspire to. And I think it is no coincidence that England industrialized faster and more effectively and more completely than France did. And why, why England took off in France, well, it did take off to some extent, lagged very significantly behind throughout the 19th century. As Don Boudreau put it, only when merchants, tinkerers, and practical seekers of profit came to be respected and to be widely spoken of res with respect, even with admiration, did the social status of the bourgeoisie increase enough to make membership in that group desirable to large numbers of people. And when this bourgeois reevaluation happened, innovation skyrocketed. It is this innovation, mad, fevered, historically off the charts amounts of innovation, that really is what we today call capitalism. It is that spirit of innovation that causes people to come up with new products, new services, new inventions, new scientific discoveries, and that makes the world modern. Why do they do this? Because they are left at liberty to do it, and because people with their different minds and talents and aptitudes all have potential within them that cannot be known in advance, but when you set that potential free, this is what happens. This is what the result is. The 19th century began with power sources like water and horsepower, literal horsepower, and it ended with steam. It began with couriers, and it ended with a telegraph. 
It began with wooden ships powered by sail. And it ended with steel ships that were powered by steam. It began with pens and it ended with typewriters. The 19th century was a time of enormous change. And the heart of that change really was Europe. Europe was the source of many, many, many of these innovations and these inventions. Now, this was an enormous benefit to everyone. This was an enormous benefit to all classes of people. However, it was not without severe reversals. It was not without severe upsets. It was not without a severe sense of disorientation. And so, while classical liberalism and while bourgeois dignity and the value of the bourgeois life is what made this possible, this did not come without very significant reactions in the opposite direction and without a very significant movement challenging and questioning whether all of this was worth it. I'm going to talk just a little bit about some of the important tendencies of the 19th century. And I use the word tendencies here because I don't like the word ideologies. I don't like the word ideologies because the usual way one proceeds in talking about ideology is one draws up a list of things that you have to believe to be a libertarian. You've all done it. Don't, don't look at me that way. You've done it. And when someone doesn't believe one of the items on the list, you strike them off. And, and this is very unfortunate because the story of European liberalism in the 19th century is often perpetrated by people who are not libertarians in any sense whatsoever. It is often perpetrated by people who aren't even really liberals in any sense whatsoever. And yet, they are influenced by the liberal tendency. They are influenced by the tendency toward liberalization. And that still is capable of doing great good even in the person of someone like Napoleon, who was a monster and who did all sorts of evil things. But he did a few good things, and some of those good things lasted, and I will talk about them. So the first really important tendency uh, of the 19th century intellectually is liberalism. I've talked about it a little bit. I'm going to give a quote from Adam Smith, which I really like, and I'm going to talk about why it's important, and then I will move on to the two other tendencies that opposed liberalism in the 19th century. Adam Smith spoke of what he called the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. Every man, as long as he does not violate the laws of justice, is left perfectly free to pursue his own interest in his own way and to bring both his industry and capital into competition with those of any other man or any other order of men. The sovereign is completely discharged from the duty of superintending the industry of private people and of directing it toward the employments most suitable to the interests of the society. The sovereign has only three duties to attend to, and they are as follows. First, the duty of protecting the society from violence and invasion. Second, the duty of protecting, as far as possible, every member of the society from the injustice or oppression of every other member of it. And thirdly, the duty of erecting and maintaining certain public works and public institutions which could never be erected by any individual or group of individuals uh, profitably. Now, the, the key points here are that this system of natural liberty, first of all, is individualist in its orientation. It looks at society as being composed of individuals who are ends in themselves, who get to self-direct, who do not 
participate in society as, say, bricks participate in a house. They are not building blocks. They are not clay to be shaped. They are their own individual people. And this is very, very important. So individualism is one of the key crucial points of the system of natural liberty. And the second is that this system is peaceful. The sovereign has three things to do, and all of them are relatively peaceful. First, he protects against international threats. Second, he protects against domestic threats. That is, you know, your neighbor trying to steal your stuff or beat you up. And third, he takes care of the public goods problem, as economists call it nowadays. Now, this is where things get a little tricky, and this is where the temptation gets really strong to take out that pen and you know, cross him off the list. Uh, this is why, also, I like to talk about tendencies rather than about ideologies, because I think Smith was one of the good guys, and I think it's really indisputable, in fact, that he was one of the good guys. The public goods problem is exactly that. It's a problem. It is a question that has been raised by thoughtful, rigorous people like Smith as to whether or not a given class of goods or items within that class must be done by the government or whether there might be some way that private individuals or private groups of individuals can, in fact, provide those goods. It used to be in textbooks that one of the classic examples of a public good was the lighthouse. Until that is, until that is Ronald Coase showed, in fact, that the lighthouse had been provided historically by private associations. So it is possible that we might solve large numbers of public goods problems, even public goods problems that we nowadays consider insoluble. I can't rule that out. The fact is, though, liberals like Smith, liberals like Smith defined this problem and set it forth for others to answer. And we're working on those answers. And that is, that is in fact, one of the great works of the liberal tendency throughout history is to address this problem in a serious and thoughtful way, which other, other tendencies or other ideologies certainly have not done. So the great advantages of, of the system of classical liber, liberalism, the, the obvious and simple system of natural liberty, I've talked about a little bit. And I would be remiss if I did not talk about that system's enemies, starting with this guy, Jörg Friedrich. Hegel. This, this guy, this guy Hegel, is, in my opinion, the most evil philosopher ever to have lived. Uh, fans of Ayn Rand, I know, I know you'll, you'll stand up for Kant being the most evil. I don't think that's the case. I think Hegel takes the cake. And, and this is why. Hegel managed to give very serious intellectual support and intellectual ammunition to the two tendencies in the 19th century that most severely opposed and ultimately defeated classical liberalism. Those tendencies were nationalism and socialism. He's the author of The Philosophy of Right and The Phenomenology of Spirit. Those are the two most important works of his. Uh, I don't advise reading either of them because they are, they are uh, for whole long paragraphs and pages, just complete mush. Uh, I have read Kant. I think I understand Kant. I have read Hegel, and I, I am not entirely sure that I understand everything about Hegel, and I'm pretty sure that no one understands everything about Hegel. I, I don't think that he is quite capable of, of being read in the ordinary manner. Arthur Schopenhauer, who was also influenced by Kant, who was a German idealist philosopher like Kant, 
and who was usually a quite temperate and reasonable philosopher, termed Hegel a flat-headed, insipid, nauseating, illiterate charlatan. <laughs> now, I'm not usually one for invective either, but I'll, I'll just let that stand. Hegel believed, Hegel believed that history had a meaning, and the meaning of history was hidden to us. We don't know what history is up to, but it's doing something really big and really important with all of us. History, he thought, has some secret hidden meaning to be discovered in the fullness of time. History was not a cycle. You saw, you saw Professor MacDonald talking about the, the classical Republican cycle of virtue that starts with farmers, and then you proceed to have a republic, and then you get to a decadent empire that eventually collapses, and you start all over again. History was not like that for Hegel. It wasn't a set of cycles of virtue and decadence. History was pointing towards something in the future that was going to be amazing and great if only we could realize it. And our part in that story was also really, really important. We just don't really know what it is. No, no, this was very serious. He, was, he meant this. He meant that there is a universal truth that we all participate in, and, and yet, and yet, we don't know that truth. It has not yet been realized. That's the purpose of history. When history ends, that truth will be known. When history ends, that truth will be known, and all of the sacrifices that we have been called to make for the purpose of that truth, they will all come to fruition in some way, and, and the universe will, will be fully conscious of itself in some profound way that, that I've never quite been able to figure out. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it is very, very appealing to some people. And in fact, it is. It, it seems great to be a part of something larger than yourself. The danger about it is that when you are a part of something larger than yourself, that thing has a way of you know, running your life. And Hegel, in his, in his uh, uh, linguistic uh, obscurantism, managed to be vague enough to inspire both left Hegelians and right Hegelians. The, the right Hegelians looked at Hegel and said, yes, we can use this. And the left Hegelians said precisely the same thing. The right Hegelians roughly became nationalists. Uh, this is Johann Gottlieb Fichte. He is a, a disciple of, of Hegel. And he is famous as the great philosopher of nationalism. And here's one of, his, one of his quotes. Only the German is capable of real and rational love for his country. He believed that nationalism was what Hegel was really talking about. And there's some evidence, I think, that, that, that Fichte was actually right on this. And I think, I think ultimately Hegel belongs on the right rather than on the left. But I, I'm not 100% sure of that. Uh, in, any event, in any event, nationalism is a social philosophy that is based on supposed character traits that all belong to the people of a given nation. And because of those character traits, they share a national destiny. How do you determine when you're in a nation? This is actually a, a very tricky question, and sociologists have asked this a lot. Uh, one answer that I like comes from the uh, current sociologist, uh, 20th century sociologist, uh, Benedict Anderson, who said that a nation is an imagined community. People who wish to all belong to a nation and think of themselves all as belonging to a nation are a nation. Uh, it was somewhat less benign than that in the 19th century. Usually people said that national identity came from language at this time. So all of the people who speak German are of the German nation. Or all the people who speak French are of the French nation. And they all have character traits that bind them together in some way. And they ought to have a national government that governs all of them together. And then once a nation has a national government, then it's time for them to start competing with other nations. 
Nationalism is a, a tendency or an ideology that emphasizes conflict among nations. When you have conflict among nations, a lot of that liberal tendency necessarily disappears. Conflict among nations in the sense that Hegel or Fichte meant uh, ended, up, ended up meaning warfare a lot. It is an intensely collectivist ideology. And it has been rightly noted, it has been very rightly noted, that nationalism has a sort of fill-in-the-blank character to it. There's a, a fellow who said once, quote, it is plain that from now on the French Republic alone can be the fatherland of the upright man. Who said that? Johann Gottlieb Fichte said that uh, before he became a German nationalist. He was a French nationalist first, and then he, and then he changed his mind. Uh, this, is, this is to me almost the complete falsification of nationalism, that every single nation thinks it is the best. They, oh, there's only one that could possibly be right in all of them. There's only one that could possibly be right, and, and maybe it's actually the case that none of them are right. Maybe it's actually the case that none of them are right. One other thing that needs to be said about nationalism is that border cases in nationalism are deadly. What do I mean by that? Border cases in nationalism are, well, first of all, questions of literal geographic borders. So between France and Germany, there's a region called Alsace and a region called Lorraine. Uh, they have been flipped back and forth throughout history. I'm not going to re reverse, you know, rehearse the whole entire history of Alsace and Lorraine. But, but during the French Revolution, there was a, a poster that was, was plastered about, about Alsace telling the residents, please stop speaking German, because you know in your hearts that you are French. <laughs> they, they no doubt loved the people of Alsace, but this was a rather creepy kind of love. A second example of border cases uh, and the way that they can turn deadly is what was termed very frequently in the 19th century the Jewish question. Nobody had any idea that the Holocaust was coming in the 19th century, but there was this thing called the Jewish question. What do we do with people who are Jewish? Are they a separate nation? Are they really Germans, but you know, they just have a different religion? Uh, what, do, what do we do with the Jews that actually speak German perfectly? What do we do with the Jews who uh, don't speak German at all, they just speak Yiddish? Uh, what about the fact that their religion is so different and requires certain certain practices that are, are, are you know, maybe difficult for us to accommodate. How do we handle Jews in civil society? Do, do we make them into Germans? Do we have to make them into Germans? Can we leave them alone and they're still Germans? This was a very difficult thing for nationalists to deal with. Anyway, the second great tendency that the philosophy of Hegel tended to inspire was socialism. Socialism is a collectivist social philosophy that is based on the idea that the economy should be organized, that it should be planned or regimented in some way or for some rational purpose. It's actually very difficult to define socialism. Uh, that's my best effort at it. And I think it's one that uh, socialists would recognize as tending to encompass uh, most socialisms in sort of a big tent. There are lots of different types of socialism. The purpose 
of socialism. The end toward which it is planning can vary a lot. There can be socialism that is for distributive justice, to make sure that no one is, ideally, no one is going to fall below a, a certain standard of living is often a purported goal of socialism. To uh, make sure that there is rationality in industrial planning was a very popular goal of socialism. So that, that our economy is planned according to a rational plan rather than the haphazard chance of the market. Or, or uh, in some of the most frank forms of socialism, to represent the class interests of the proletariat. Now, there are, from, these diversity of, from this diversity of, of uh, purposes or goals, there are different forms of socialism in practice that emerge. Uh, this is an example of utopian socialism. This is Robert Owen's plan for new harmony, which was to be an ideal community. And uh, you would go there and you would live in this thing, and it's, it, it's, it's a coincidence. I swear it's a coincidence that it looks like a prison. Uh, but, but you would go there, and you would go there willingly because it was utopia, you see. And, and it would be, it'd be about 1,500 to 1,600 people. They would all live together. They would all work together. They would have a sort of, of, of brotherhood or fraternity. They would have this sort of camaraderie because they all live and work together. And this was supposed to be better than the industrial factory labor system with wages. And then you go back to your house or your apartment or your tenement, and you live with your family. This was supposed to replace both family and work. It was never built. It, uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out. It turned out that uh, uh, people actually liked having private houses. And well, Robert Owen maybe didn't like private houses. Most people did. And, uh, and, and so this, this never came to fruition. There were a number of different schemes that were like this. And none of them lasted very long. There were other forms of socialism, though. There's what's called Fabian socialism. Uh, there's actually, there is actually a, a group called the Fabian Society in the UK. And uh, the goal of the Fabian Society was to bring about socialism gradually, through democratic means, through elections, through uh, bills in parliament. And in fact, the Fabian Society has an outgrowth that is the Labour Party, founded in 1900 as a deliberately socialist party. It's been very, very successful in the UK. And uh, they do not preach violent revolution. They preach gradual, incremental movement toward socialism. And so that's, that's another tendency in socialism. There's utopian socialism, there is Fabian socialism, and there is communism. Uh, this, is, this is an instantly recognizable Lego minifigurine. And uh, here's a quote I have chosen from Karl Marx because it illustrates most clearly his connection to Hegel. Communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be that solution. Communism under Marx proposed that we will not ever, ever, ever achieve socialism through the utopian method of trying to build a small planned community and scale it up. Uh, or we would never achieve socialism through gradual, peaceful, democratic means. In fact, communists like Marx, like Friedrich Engels, opposed gradualism in socialism. They said, no, we must not have this. We must have violent revolution. That's the only way to bring it about. That's the only way to bring about a true communist society. Communists were violent. That is, that is what their original ideology was under Marx. And communists who, who proclaim themselves to be nonviolent are, are actually significantly deviating from Marx in that sense. Now, 
much of what is termed liberalism in the modern world is actually socialism. It's, it is actually socialism. It is not uh, what liberalism meant in the 19th century. And the rest of my talk is going to be about the origins and, and the progress of this three-cornered rivalry between liberalism, communism, or socialism, and nationalism. And we will move back a little bit in time to the American Revolution and its effects in Europe. We've got three figures here, just three among, among several, uh, who were either participants in or commentators on the American Revolution. Uh, Friedrich von Steuben was a Prussian uh, military officer. He served under George Washington. He wrote the first U.S. Army field manual, uh, he, uh, a drill manual, excuse me, drill manual. Uh, he was, was very important in the revolution. Uh, he did not have much influence in Prussia, unfortunately, because he ended up uh, retiring in the United States. Uh, the second uh, on, on the, uh, the lower right here is uh, Thaddeus Kosciuszko, who's a, a Polish patriot who fought again with Washington. Uh, his first name, Thaddeus, is my middle name. Uh, it is a popular name in Poland in part in his honor, and it is also a popular name among certain Polish Americans. My grandfather's first name, again, was Thaddeus. Um, he, uh, during the second partition of Poland uh, in 1794, he led an uprising against the Russian Empire and for Polish independence. And uh, he had this to say about it. He said he promised not to use his powers to oppress any person, but to defend the integrity of the borders of Poland, to regain the independence of the nation, and to strengthen universal liberties. Kosciuszko was a foe of slavery. He, in his will, left a substantial sum of money to Thomas Jefferson to free Jefferson's slaves. Jefferson ended up declining the money, uh, somewhat to, uh, to our lasting shame. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, an example of, uh, I would say, the turn against, uh, against liberalism that can be found in certain American founders after the establishment of, of the American Republic. And the third figure in the center, Gilbert de Moutier, better known as the Marquis de Lafayette. He was a major general under George Washington. He was a key link between the American and the French revolutions. And he urged, as best he could, American principles in France. In some senses, he was successful, but in a lot of senses, he was not. In 1787, his influence helped to bring about an edict of toleration in France, where Louis XVI tolerated uh, Protestants throughout the kingdom. And this was a significant step forward in religious liberty. He helped to draft the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which we will talk about a little bit longer, uh, very shortly. Uh, he, like many good people, fled during the terror, but he came back in 1815 and served as a liberal in the Chamber of Dep Deputies, which was the, the legislative body of the constitutional, uh, or the restored Burman monarchy and the constitutional monarchy uh, following, uh, following 1830. He himself refused uh, a couple of fairly significant offers of personal power during the Revolution of 1830. Uh, he could have been the regent to the Count of Chambord, who was at the time a child, and would have continued the, uh, the reign of the legitimist branch of the, the, French, the French monarchy, the Bourbon monarchy. He declined that. He did not want to see the Bourbons continuing to rule France. He was then offered uh, the presidency of the French Republic, which 
given that this wasn't a democratically elected presidency, it's somewhat questionable whether this was uh, really a presidency at all, and he very wisely declined that as well, and instead allowed uh, Louis-Philippe of the House of Orleans to set up a constitutional monarchy in 1830, and his hope was, his hope was that this would end up being the, uh, the liberal government that France really needed. Uh, he ended up being disappointed in that hope later and following his death especially, but... But uh, he, he did what he could and, and certainly followed in Washington's footsteps in renouncing personal power. And I will just name two very influential Americans in Europe. Uh, my favorite founding father, who's Benjamin Franklin, uh, was the first US ambassador to France. He was a favorite at the court of Versailles. He uh, ended up becoming a sort of symbol to the French of American potential and American liberty and what a nation at liberty was capable of doing. And, and this, had a, this had a very ambivalent sort of uh, effect at court because on the one hand, yes, they were really sticking it to the English and they loved that because the French hated the English. But on the other hand, the Americans were Republicans. They were anti-royalists. They were against aristocracy. Franklin himself wrote tracts where he mocked the aristocracy about their supposed bloodlines, and he did the math and, and figured out how little uh, noble blood you have if your great-great-great-great-grandfather had done some great noble deed and been ennobled by, by King Francis I or whatever it was. And, and, and the French knew this, and they knew that it was dangerous. They knew that it was dangerous to champion Ben Franklin, and they did it anyway. This was a very subversive thing that Franklin became such a, a hero in pre-revolutionary France. The second great American to have a very big influence on the French Revolution was Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense, of course, and The Rights of Man, which was considerations on, on uh, politics and government and, and rights uh, in light of the American and French revolutions. He was so popular in France that he got elected to the French National Convention. This was the government during the Reign of Terror. Uh, Paine did not speak French, but he was elected to the convention anyway, uh, and, and played a very interesting part in the revolution, which I'll talk about in just a little bit. The big question with this enormous influence coming across the Atlantic to Europe. The big question was, how do we translate these principles into the European experience? Not easy. The old regime in France was a status-based society. Your status comes from the central government. The central government fights lots of wars. Those wars are not cheap. It needs money. What does it do? It sells status for money. Most, most noblemen, by the time of the French Revolution, were newly ennobled, that is to say, within the last several generations. They didn't go back to Charlemagne. It was more like their grandfather had bought an office. Uh, the sale of offices was a very important way of financing the government. And this gave you social privileges. It took you out of the tax pool. That's a big one. Nobles escape almost all direct taxes. So you buy a noble office, you put that de particle, I'm no longer Jason Kuznicki, you put the de particle in there. I am Jason de Kuznicki. I refer to my land as an estate, and I stop paying taxes. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, in his great book, The Old Regime and the French Revolution, talks about the great desire of the bourgeoisie to cut an official figure in the old regime 
everyone who was successful in the old regime in business or in finance or in trade wanted to get out of business or finance or trade and buy a noble office and buy an estate and stop working. This is what economists call perverse incentive. And it stunted economic growth in the old regime. By material conditions, France should have demolished England in the Industrial Revolution. Instead, it was the other way around because of these perverse incentives that took all of the talented and capable and energetic people and turned them into idle, rich noblemen who did not manage businesses, who gambled away their money, who sat around and watched plays, very good plays, but sat around and watched plays at Versailles rather than working to build an industrial economy. And so France went broke and was forced to call the Estates General. And that was the beginning of the very long and very complicated French Revolution that I can't possibly get into. Uh, I will say, though, that France faced a tremendous problem set that we as Americans did not face. Their problem set included things like this entrenched aristocracy. It included the fact that the Catholic Church was the largest single landholder in France, and it uh, only, only was capable of managing those lands through tenant farming, or through peasantry, or through, uh, through uh, labor that was not exactly legally serfdom, but very, very close to it. One of the first things that they did when the Estates General was called is they realized that they couldn't vote by orders anymore. The third estate, which is to say everyone who is not noble, everyone who is not a member of the Catholic clergy, uh, this is, this is uh, you know, in the high 90s percent of, of everyone in France, about 98 or 97 percent of everyone, represented by one order, the third estate. They get one vote. And they said, this isn't going to work anymore. Uh, we want two votes. And the king said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the Parlement of Paris, which was the law court, said, no, you're not going to do that. And the third estate said, OK, fine, we are going to meet independently because we are the true representatives of the nation. They took what they call the tennis court oath on June 20th, 1789. They promised that they were going to make a new constitution for France. And they were going to keep meeting until they had one. The first thing they made was a declaration of rights of man and citizen, which I've already talked to you a little bit about. Um, there were some things that were good about it. There were some things that were bad about it. It was a mix of liberalism and nationalism, like so much else in the French Revolution. Uh, I'll give you one good thing and one bad thing. I'll start with the bad thing. Law, it says, is the expression of the general will. This is not an expression of majority rule. It is an expression of the general will, which is something a little bit different. The general will is that which a virtuous legislator would do for the people if that virtuous legislator took all of the people's interests into his mind and considered all of them carefully. Now, how do you find a virtuous legislator? <laughs> this becomes not just a laughing matter, although it is a laughing matter. It becomes a matter of life and death in the French Revolution. And people fight with each other over who is more virtuous. And you got these remarkable spectacles of patriotic demonstration followed by violence all through the French Revolution because exactly of this question of who best represents the general will. This cartoon is, is one of Maximilien Robespierre, who was, was the most influential member of the Committee of the Public Safety during the terror. And he is, uh, he's not being guillotined. He is guillotining the executioner because he's killed everyone else. 
this is, this is uh, he was in fact in real life he was guillotined. He was he was executed in time. Okay, so that's that's terrible, and that's you know the, the law is the expression of the general will is a terrible principle. There there were some very good ones though. Uh, the first principle of the Declaration of Rights of Man is that men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. Now, that is one that I, I actually have no serious problem with. If I find a social distinction that's not founded on the general good, like hereditary aristocracy, get rid of it. A social distinction that does, in fact, refer back to the general good or that does conduce to the general good, like property, hey, great, I'm for it. So, the key difference between the American and the French revolutions is this idea of the general will and the idea that the government somehow embodies the general will. And where does it all end? It ends in a gigantic outpouring of militarism and nationalism known as the Napoleonic Wars. Tocqueville said it best in his book about the old regime and the French Revolution. It's a curious fact that when the French economists of the 18th century envisaged all the social and administrative reforms later carried out by our revolutionaries, the idea of free political institutions never crossed their minds. That said, <clears throat> the 19th century was not entirely a defeat for liberalism. Quite the contrary. There were many significant liberal victories. The abolition of the slave trade and later of slavery in the entire British Empire was one of them. And the one individual who most embodies this quest was William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a member of parliament. He campaigned for 23 years for the abolition first of the slave trade and then of slavery. And he got what he asked for, an enormous benefactor to humankind. The second man here, Alexander II of Russia, not exactly an enormous benefactor of humankind. Uh, he was the absolute monarch of Russia. He was a reformer. He supported the creation of some limited local government bodies that were autonomous and to some degree representative. And he did, in fact, liberate the serfs of Russia in 1861. Serfs are not exactly slaves. Serfs, in theory at least, were laborers who were bound to a particular piece of soil, a, a noble estate or a noble manor. And serfdom had existed in various forms throughout Europe uh, from the early Middle Ages all the way up to the 19th century. It had been abolished in England and in Scotland uh, first and, and way before our period, in, in roughly the 14th and 15th centuries, in fact. Uh, and in France, it was much attenuated by the revolution, although certain noble uh, prerogatives and certain feudal obligations remained. In Russia, it was worst of all. Uh, there were very many serfs. They owed a very great deal of very severe labor to their lords. They could be sold independently of the land, which uh, ends up making them very much more like chattel slaves in the United States than any other serfs in the rest of Europe. Serfdom elsewhere didn't involve necessarily, or only very rarely, that sort of, uh, of being sold away from all of your friends and family. A, a particularly grave indignity that Alexander uh, ended up finally suppressing in 1861. Now, very unfortunately for Russia, Alexander was killed in 1881 by a group of socialist anarchists 
And uh, with him died any hope of further gradual liberal-directed reform in Russia. After, after Alexander II and all the way up to the Russian Revolution, it's very little but oppression and Fabergé eggs. So uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot more to tell about the history of Russian liberalism. Not a whole lot. Happily, in Britain, there is a great deal to tell. These two individuals, John Bright and Richard Cobden, were the two most influential members of what was called the Anti-Corn Law League. They were both members of parliament. And the corn laws worked like this. They were passed in 1815, and they set a price that was prohibitive on foreign imports of corn. So you're not allowed to import it unless the corn price reaches a certain level that it never reached. This law had a very distortionary effect on trade. It very definitely favored the traditional noble estates, the traditional old nobility in England, the landowners, the landlords, and it disfavored the rising class of industrialists and the people who wanted to work for them. It disfavored them because if you want to be an industrial laborer, you are spending your time obviously not making food, you're buying food. This created a demand for foreign food to be brought into the, uh, the kingdom, into, into the United Kingdom. And, and the proponents of the Corn Laws described them as patriotic measures, described them as, as being, you know, keeping this very important traditional element in society. Economists, however, saw them for what they were. And uh, in particular, David Ricardo, in 1817, in his Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, talked about the law of comparative advantage for the first time in a really rigorous and clearly demonstrative way. And doing this was very helpful to the Anti-Corn Law League. It's very, very helpful and very influential. Robert Peel, who was the prime minister when the Corn Laws were finally repealed, said in so many words that reading David Ricardo and the other economists had changed his mind. The Corn Laws finally repealed in 1846. As a result, British food prices dropped substantially. This meant that the real wages for industrial laborers rose. This enabled England to be very competitive on the world market for industrial goods. This allowed England, in other words, to pursue its comparative advantage. The law of comparative advantage worked exactly as advertised. Cobden went on to negotiate a very important free trade treaty with France, the Cobden-Chevalier Treaty of 1860, which greatly reduced tariffs between the two countries and, in fact, improved the lot of both of them. Religious liberty takes great strides during this era. There's been a long, 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 bloody, and actually, frankly, rather boring history of religious warfare in Europe, uh, and we're not going to get into it. Uh, the situation at the beginning of our era is that there are still some very significant disabilities for some disfavored groups. Specifically, I'm going to talk about dissenters and Catholics in England, and I'm going to talk about Jews. Up here, you have Joseph Priestley, the discoverer of oxygen, a philosopher, a natural scientist, and a religious nonconformist. 
the title of the cartoon is a word of comfort, and the word of comfort is no. The word of comfort is no because the question he was just asked was, do you believe that there's a devil? And he said no. And in doing so, he flunked the religious test that was required for public office. The 1829 Roman Catholic Relief Act repealed what was known as the Test Act. The Test Act quizzed you on your religious beliefs. You had to affirm, uh, you had to swear to a creed that essentially guaranteed that you were an Anglican. You could not be a Catholic. You could not be a Quaker or a Baptist or a Unitarian. Uh, these were things that were, were commonly just excluded from office and, and all that uh, it was gradually attenuated, but finally, but finally, Catholics for quite some time, quite some time, Catholics were left out, and people who were were uh, dissenters like Priestley also were left out for certain of their beliefs, and ultimately, it was repealed. Also, Jews during this time faced some severe and humiliating and sometimes just really weird legal penalties. Uh, they had restrictions on their place of residence. They had restrictions on what professions they could be in. Uh, they were usually barred from politics uh, periodically, although not very often during our time period. They, they were expelled, expelled from a country. Uh, they did, however, face significant mob violence that virtually never went punished, particularly in Eastern Europe. And they were, in many places in Central and Eastern Europe, exposed to or, or subject to the peculiar rite known as the Oath More Judaico. This is the oath in the fashion of the Jews. And it varied from place to place. But when a Christian swore an oath in court, they simply took an oath on a Bible in a very straightforward, ordinary way. Uh, the Jew had to wear a funny costume and stand on the hide of a pig and often recite this very long, very terrible oath. May I, my children become leprous, and may the fires that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah rain down upon me, and, and on and on and on. And, and sometimes it was even more humiliating than that. So for example, in Silesia, in southern Poland, uh, if you were a Jew, you had to stand while you testified on this, I presume it must have been a fairly rickety stool. And if you fell, you were fined. And if you fell four times, you lost your case. Uh, yeah, and, and, and these types of oaths, these types of rituals conveyed the message very clearly to the court that Jews were not to be trusted. They were not to be trusted. And, and these types of disabilities during, during the 19th century were gradually done away with. Now, the United States, I'm pleased to say, got these things right from the very beginning. Our Constitution outlaws test acts, forbids them specifically, even before the First Amendment. With the passage of the First Amendment, free exercise of religion was guaranteed, and state churches, at the federal level at least, were forbidden. As a result, the United States becomes a very attractive place for Jews to immigrate, particularly when they faced periodic persecutions in Eastern Europe, which they continually did during this time. Women's equality. This is one of the more positive outgrowths, I would say, of the French Revolution. These two women were very directly influenced by the events of the French Revolution. Mary Wollstonecraft authored a book called Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and Olympe de Gouges wrote what she called the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and Citizeness. It works a little bit better in French. Uh, what they argued was that if you make the case 
for universal male citizenship and political participation on an equal footing, then you also, whether you mean to or not, are making the case for equal participation for women. They were ridiculed and scorned and mocked in their own time, and eventually they won. Now, sadly, neither of them got to see it. Olympe de Gouges in particular because she was executed during the terror. She was executed during the terror because while she was a Republican and while she supported the French Republican government, she was unwilling to assent to the execution of the king and in fact condemned that act. So she was executed for that. Now, liberalism had many, many successes, but it also had many, many reverses and failures. The rise of socialism, most notable among them. Herbert Spencer claimed most of these who uh, now pass as liberals are Tories of a new type. And what he meant by that was that they ultimately were adopting principles of command and control in the economy. And very perceptively, he noted that these principles of command and control were conservative. They were not liberal in any sense at all. They aimed at particular goals or ends or, or, or plans of life, and then they would stop. And he condemned this as the new Toryism. Socialism, though, was, in fact, very appealing to liberals because it seemed to promise an end to history. It seemed to promise that the golden age was just around the corner. And rhetorically, that was very, very appealing. Another thing that was very popular was nationalism. Nationalism rises and rises and rises during the 19th century. As a result, some of the world's greatest atrocities are committed and some very, very uh, bad policies are enacted even in the heart of Europe. This is Otto von Bismarck. It is the destiny, he said, of the weak to be devoured by the strong. And he meant by the strong, the strong was Germans. Bismarck secured his political popularity through a series of military victories against Austria, he, uh, he defeated Austria, he defeated France, he unified what is now known as Germany under Prussian control, and he used his political capital to fight against those elements of the culture that he thought weren't really properly German. It's called the Kulturkampf. So war against the bad elements in the culture. Now, it is always a bad sign when your religion has an office in the Ministry of Culture that is dedicated to watching over it. It is an even worse sign when the sovereign looks at that office and abolishes it. And that's exactly what he did for the Catholics. He did not want the Catholics to be a part of German culture and he took very specific steps to exclude them and to, to make it very difficult to be a practicing Catholic and also a German. He abandoned free trade. He passed coercive laws to punish the socialists. And in a stroke of devilish political genius, he set up the first welfare state, which was very popular with the conservatives as a hedge against socialism. The socialists all voted against it. But it was enacted. Things got much worse outside of Europe, where nationalism becomes the new wave of imperialism. Uh, the yellow country in the center of Africa that is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo 
was at the time known as the Congo Free State. It was the personal fiefdom, in effect, of Leopold II of Belgium. And it's proof that you can put the word free on absolutely anything. Uh, the Belgian Congo and the Belgian Free State uh, was an absolute abomination. Uh, the natives there were forced to work on rubber plantations. If they didn't meet their quota, their hands were cut off. It is estimated that the Congo Free State administration was responsible for 10 million deaths. And when these nationalist tendencies come home to roost in Europe itself, the result is World War I. World War I was industrialized warfare on a scale never before seen. The low end estimate of deaths is 17 million. World War I and World War II were the inspiration for Ludwig von Mises when he wrote about war. And he said, in the long run, war and the preservation of the market economy are incompatible. Capitalism is essentially a scheme for peaceful nations. If the efficiency of capitalism is directed by governments toward the output of instruments of destruction, the ingenuity of private business turns out weapons which are powerful enough to destroy everything. World War I was indirectly responsible for the founding of the first communist state, which became the Soviet Union. World War I gave us the Treaty of Versailles, which was an attempt to enact the nicest and cleanest and neatest possible sort of nationalist scheme. Uh, national self-determination, it was called, except we punished Germany very, very hard. We will punish Germany for starting the war. Now, this caused an enormous amount of resentment in Germany, which was now surrounded by small and very delicious countries. And the result was World War II. In World War II, over 60 million people lost their lives. That was about 2.5% of the world's population. On the battlefield, the side that was not 100% evil, the side that was not 100% evil uh, won. Sadly, I'm missing a slide. I had a slide of Nazis. And the side that was not 100% evil won. But this gave a very big boost to the Soviet Union, which became a player on the world stage as it never had been before. The Soviet Union acquires satellite countries in Eastern Europe. Comrade Lenin, the cartoon says, cleanses the filth from the earth a much more humane and sensitive and intelligent soul who had the misfortune of living in the Soviet Union. Alexander Solzhenitsyn saw things as they really were. He was a frequent guest at what was called the Gulag Archipelago, a system of prison camps that extended from Siberia all the way to just a few dozens of miles outside of Moscow, uh, spent much of his adult life interned there. And he wrote, the boundaries of human equilibrium are very narrow. It is not really necessary to use a rack or hot coals to drive the average human being out of his mind. The torture techniques used by the Soviets were simple but very, very effective. Things like extreme cold and sleep deprivation and what they call the Czechist's handshake, which was you take a pencil, cost 25 cents, put it between the fingers, squeeze. Enormously painful, very, very cheap. Very, very cheap and very effective at extorting false confessions. P 
People would swear that they were spies for Lithuania or that they were spies for uh, you know, just you know, preposterous conspiracies that, that never existed at all. The Soviet Union was responsible for what became known as the terror famine in which the rich agricultural region of the Ukraine was subjected to very brutal collectivization of farming. And that collectivization of farming, again, killed perhaps as many as 5 to 10 million people. The only real doubt in historians' minds about this episode is how much of it was a deliberate genocide and how much of it was just malign and very colossal neglect and incompetence. The historian Robert Conquest's book, Harvest of Sorrow, which I highly recommend, opts for genocide and makes the case that this was a very deliberate event and a very deliberate killing of millions and millions of people through planned starvation. Oh, there's my National Socialism. Okay, in any event, in any event, following Following World War II, the question becomes, what did we do wrong? And how can we improve in the future? And this is a question that everyone asks, including people on the far left. You've got uh, people on the far left, like the Frankfurt School, who ask these sorts of questions about totalitarianism, uh, particularly of the right, but even also of their own. And you get people who are moderates and conservatives. And you also get people who are classical liberals asking, what just happened? Where did we go wrong? And uh, two of the most influential of these people were Karl Popper and Ludwig von Mises. Von Mises, I've already quoted. Karl Popper is a great hero of mine intellectually, and I'm going to quote him now. In his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, he wrote, in response to Hegel, in response to the idea that history has some great meaning and we are all part of it, he wrote, our intellectual as well as our ethical education, is corrupt. It is perverted by the admiration of brilliance. It is perverted by the romantic idea of the splendor of the stage of history on which we are the actors. We are educated to act with an eye to the gallery. Instead of posing as prophets, we must become the makers of our fate. We must learn to do things as well as we can and to look out for our mistakes. And when we've dropped the idea that the history of power will be our judge, when we have given up worrying about whether or not history will justify us, then one day perhaps we may succeed in getting power under control. That's the task of modern classical liberalism in the wake of the failure of the old classical liberalism. Thank you. And I believe I have time for questions. Hello, um, my name is Emmanuel. I come from Paris. So as a French and as a lawyer, I feel obliged to ask you not really a question, but some of my input since you spoke a lot about France. Sorry, is the first one. 
Um, I have the problem in the same way that Mr. Palmer talked about it yesterday, about the definition of aristocracy. Because you all seem to say, okay, those guys were basically lazy, they didn't want to work. Now, bottom line is, I don't know if they were, but um, they couldn't work. If you worked when you were an aristocrat, you would lose your aristocracy. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely so right. So they couldn't de facto work. That's it's called the, the law of derogation. Uh, it, it is derogatory to work. It is, it is actually considered, it's vile. The cognate word vie in French is, is vile to work. Uh, if you are an aristocrat, you're above all that. You, you live by, by being a landlord. Uh, you live off of the rents from your estates, but you do not work. And that and, was made pretty sure since San Luis of the 13th century until Louis XIV, who made that pretty sure, to make sure that all the noble would just basically try to keep that. Then further on, it was very hard for the bourgeoisie to really emerge because they wouldn't marry, so there was no mingling with the caste. Exactly. And then when it did, Napoleon came around and made those all the stupid laws on property rights, on successions, you could not transfer. So that got our bourgeoisie totally stunned. And that's why we missed the Industrial Revolution. That is absolutely true. Now that said, Napoleon did do some good things. For example, he did open the careers to talents. Formerly, if you wanted to hold a high government office, you had to be noble-born. And if you wanted to get a post in the army, you had to be noble-born. Napoleon well, He did was, schools. He did Saint-Cyr. Yes, yes he did. Well, Napoleon was very successful as a military commander because he promoted the people who won small skirmishes. And so he got a lot of competent people under him. And that was maybe the largest part of his military genius. He also did another thing that's very, very good for the cause of liberalism, which was the Napoleonic Code, which allowed transfer of property a lot like what we are used to and much less like the old regime, where if you're a nobleman, very frequently you can't sell your estate. You're forbidden from selling your estate. You must pass it on to your children. That was done away with. One very stupid thing. He said only the firstborn, le droit d'aînesse, could that, have, so then people wouldn't have had children, so that really... That is correct, that is correct. The, 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 uh, the inheritance laws were, were not so great. But and he did one thing that really destroyed all our city in the time. He said, well, now we're going to tax windows. Yes. <laughs> so... But, but I, there, are, there are other good points to the Napoleonic Code. Wherever in Europe they adopted the Napoleonic Code, serfdom is out the window. It's forbidden. You cannot be a serf under the Napoleonic Code. And that was a great thing. So, so, so he did a lot of good things as well as a lot of terrible things. He was a tremendous warmonger, a tremendous nationalist, a lot of very bad ideas in the code, but also a lot of liberal ones. And that's, you know, that's why I talk about a liberal tendency rather than about uh, people who are true liberals. Because even, even someone like Napoleon is sometimes doing things that have good liberal effects. And, and we need to think about that as part of the overall picture of, of what liberalism means in the 19th century. Um, can I take next? Um, yeah, as we know, the French Revolution and the American Revolution happened hand in hand. And even famously, Thomas Jefferson wanted to model the American Revolution <laughs> after the French Revolution in no, some no. aspects. Well, he was very well, that, Chronologically, that's impossible. Well, but, <laughs> Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a Francophile. He liked the French a lot. He wished the French very well in their revolution. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, chronology doesn't work there. Yeah. Um, anyways, the question, I guess, is why is it that uh, do you believe that the French Revolution was so much more gruesome and ended up being, in the end, essentially what they overthrew, where it was, they were guillotining the people. Whereas the US, there was tar and feathering and many other things of that nature. But it, I don't think it was really comparable at well, all. Well, the French never managed to acquire the idea 
that people in a republic can disagree legitimately about politics. If you disagreed with something that the government wanted to do in the United States, you write about it, you maybe hold a demonstration, you talk to your representatives, and that's perfectly legitimate. And even when somebody does that and we think that their cause is wrong here, we don't say, okay, now we kill you. In France, anyone who suggested that the power of the central state had gone on far enough and that we need to stop giving it more different powers, anyone who did that was unpatriotic and not truly French and had to be killed. That was the rhetoric and very often the reality of the French Revolution. That's why, it, that's why it became bloody. And I think it is really the influence of that uh, Rousseauist general will idea and the, the proto-nationalism that's behind it, that you're not a true Frenchman unless you are with the government. Hello. Yes. Um, First of all, a wonderful presentation. Uh, my name is Gabriela Bachille, and I'm uh, a major in economics at Central University of Venezuela. So I really agreed with you when you said that it is really hard to define um, uh, socialism and communism. I totally agree on that. But I think it is even harder to define um, far-right politics. Uh, so. My question is, even if far right politics and left right um, and left um, far left politics might sound um, outdated, because at the end of the day, uh, it is just all about more government and less individual and otherwise. Um, I my question is, how would you define um, far left? Uh, no, far right politics. Sorry, far right. Well, politics. I I would say that that far right politics is marked by a collectivism of blood, a collectivism of national ancestry or of a shared national destiny and of antagonistic competition among nations. And so you see this very clearly uh, in, in Nazi Germany. They are all about purity of blood, whatever that actually means. Uh, the, the fact is that this is, this is a tremendously confused concept and when you, when you ask an anthropologist about the purity of German blood, uh, they'll laugh at you because the Germans were a crossroads of Europe and people were constantly coming through and settling. There's no, there's no such thing as an Aryan, that's a fiction. But it was a useful fiction for the National Socialists because it got people fired up, it got them angry, it got them uh, unified behind a collectivist project, at least for a time. And, uh, and it militarized them. So, sorry. So the main difference would be that uh, between uh, far-left politics and far-right politics is that, that um, communists don't believe in nation, just they believe in, in pluralitarianism. The, their collectivism is based on class. Exactly. It's based on class interests. Class. So uh, their, their collectivism looks for what they say is the class interests of the proletariat. I think they've misidentified the class interests of the proletariat. I think the class interests of the proletariat is to have a liberal government in which people are free to pursue economic opportunities and et cetera, et cetera. But they claim to stand for the interests of that class as a collective and to be the enemies of other classes. Uh, Lenin, when he's cleaning the filth of the earth, you see kings and also uh, bankers and a, a priest here. And these are, these are the uh, people that are not of the proper class and he's getting rid of them. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you talked about how everything you know, sort of built up to World War II and then we were so horrified by World War II and, and, and pretty much a climax of nationalism. And yeah, we've sort of seen that pan out. You know, we don't have many 
you know, uh, at least in this industrialized world, we don't have many, you know, nationalist governments anymore, or not like Nazis anyway. Um, but I was curious about the conclusion afterwards because, you know, you did refer to them as less evil, the winners, uh, which I... Well, what I mean by that is, what I mean by that is you have the United States and Britain and France, which are, you know, liberal democracies, but they're allied with the Soviet Union. I, I called that side the not entirely evil side, I believe, because there was, you know, there's a portion of it that is actually entirely evil, which is the Soviet Union, but the, the allies were not entirely evil. They were, they were, you know, decent governments in there, too. Right, well, my question centers around how uh, in Europe there was a lot of evolution leading up to World War II, just like you were talking about. In the United States, we had the progressive movement in a very similar time. But whereas in Europe, they seem to have dropped many things, at least the Soviet Union in the 90s, uh, in the United States, we still pretty much have the system that we had coming out of the progressive era. And if anything, it's expanded. I was wondering why they had the bright idea that this war was a really bad thing and we should fix our methods. Um, to the extent that they did, and to some extent they haven't, and why we haven't very much, and why you know that we haven't seen more improvement. What, you mean why why has the United States not abandoned the progressive ideology? You know that was my question, but now I think about it, Europe hasn't really gone very liberal either. So I was wondering why. Well, the Soviet Union did fall, and it did fall in part because it was completely unable to deliver the kind of well-being to its citizens that we take for granted here, uh, that uh, house might have in it a television and a washing machine and a microwave and that, that sort of thing. The Soviet Union just did not manage to do. And uh, when people became increasingly aware of this and when they got really sick and tired of competing with the British in the standing in line championship, uh, they, they lost faith in their government and they demanded reforms. All right, thank you. One. I'm going to ask you to state the questions, but you can't answer them. But we're here, one minute. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, my question had to do with uh, um, your, 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 when you brought up the great fact, you, you said that um, you attribute the, that, that expansion of, of income to innovation, and, but you also clearly said, you, you said clearly that it did not have to do with the use of coal. Um, and when I think about the innovation that took place during that period, during that expansion, it actually had a lot to do with the innovation that had to do with um, new sources of energy. So I'm curious why you would why you would um, state that it, that that coal had was not the reason for it. Okay, can, can I have one sentence? <laughs> um, my question was just if you could comment on kind of Benjamin Disraeli and the kind of how he's at the center of you, the Jewish question, the religious liberty question, and then the liberalism versus nat nationalism question. And I can't answer this. <laughs> okay. 